mornings. I'm Chris Oaks. And coming up today, Findlay Mayor Christina Mern joins us to talk more about her idea for a different approach to the budget process for the coming year, along with the debate over a proposed housing development for Habitat for Humanity. Also this morning in our ongoing Crime Prevention Conversations series, combating the problem of bullying and cyberbullying and how this seemingly never-ending fight relates to our children's safety and security. And just like annual wellness visits are important to us, our pets need regular check-ins with their doctor as well. This is a good time of the year to get that done. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. This is pretty cool. A prehistoric landmark in southern Ohio being named a World Heritage Site by the UN's World Heritage Committee. UNESCO, this week, chose 37 sites around the world. Around the world! Just 37 sites to add to its list of historical places that are considered to have cultural and natural heritage of outstanding value to humanity. And making this year's list are the Hopewell Ceremonial Earthworks. That's the group of earthen mounds built around 2,000 years ago by indigenous peoples, now known as the Hopewell culture, in and around uh, or near Chillicothe. Um, It's the 25th UNESCO World Heritage Site in the U.S., Uh, And 37 sites among 37 sites around the world to earn the honor. That's pretty cool, actually. So a a nice honor for the Buckeye State there. It's it's been years since I've been to the the mounds. Uh, I think I was a a kid the last time we visited. So if you haven't visited uh, recently, uh, might want to plan a trip. It is a place of cultural and natural heritage of outstanding value to humanity. Pretty high praise there from from the UN. Uh, A couple of other uh, interesting items among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. So are you ready to allow Elon Musk to implant a computer chip into your brain? (laughs) Uh, The brain implant startup Neuralink says it has gotten approval to recruit patients for its very first human trial. The company owned by Elon Musk said in a release yesterday that they want to test their experimental device on people with paralysis in a six-year study. Last year, the FDA denied the company's request to fast-track human trials, but it gave Neuralink approval in May to begin said clinical trials. Neuralink says it's looking for patients who have lost the use of their arms and legs due to uh, spinal cord injury or ALS or something of uh, of that nature. They want to regain. They want to give you the opportunity. Want to give people the opportunity to regain use of their extremities and um, other. I don't know. Is allowing. Elon Musk to put a chip in my brain. That just sounds that just sounds scary. Although, uh, I would say if uh, if I had a spinal cord injury or ALS, I might be willing to 
do just about anything to regain uh, control over my body. No. No. The chip in the brain. I'm not sure if I would let anyone put a microchip in my brain. Least of all, Elon Musk. <laughs> I mean, of all the people that you could allow to put a microchip in your brain, Elon Musk could probably be down there on the list. You know, that's really not real high on the list. Um, so you remember uh, back in November, I think it was, of last year, Edwin Castro won a record-breaking $2 billion Powerball jackpot. Do you remember that? That huge $2 billion Powerball jackpot. Um, And it was won by Edwin Castro. I don't know if you remember him. A bit of a follow-up here. Apparently, financial experts uh, are wincing at the way he has thus far spent his money. Uh, since winning back in November, uh, Mr. Castro has purchased a $25.5 million home in the same neighborhood as like Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> and other Hollywood celebs. Um, now, instead of purchasing an expensive home, advisors always suggest waiting until the uh, high of the win. I mean, you win $2 billion, you're just mind-blown kind of thing. And they say it takes about a year for you to come back down to earth. So really should not uh, spend large amounts of money until you've had a chance to process that, digest it, and give yourself a time to you know, take it all in and, and come back down off that high. I would imagine they say it's usually six months to a year. I would say that would have to be incredibly difficult to wait that long. If you won two billion dollars, I would think if you won two billion dollars, you could probably fritter fritter away, you know, ten or fifteen million of it, and never even miss that. So it's probably not that big of a deal, but doesn't they say it doesn't bode well? for his long-term financial stability, if you will. Uh, Mr. Castro's $25.5 million Hollywood Hills home could cost him over $255,000 annually just in maintenance costs alone. So you got to think about that when you go and plop down an insane amount of money on a house. How much is going to cost you to keep it up? Uh, He has also bought, and that's not the only home that he has purchased, he bought a $4 million home in Altadena and a vintage Porsche (laughs) as well. Uh, One financial planner by the name of Nicholas Bunio, um, there's a financial planner they talked to for this piece, uh, following up on Edwin Castro's huge Powerball win, Um, he says, people don't understand there is a potential for loss. They only focus on the potential for gain. You have a big lottery jackpot, but there's always possibility that you're going to lose it. And many, many big lottery winners do, in fact, end up losing all of their winnings within a very, very short amount of time. You would think $2 billion. How can you blow $2 billion? But apparently he is well on his way. I don't, 
I just bring it up because it makes you, in, in an in an odd, twisted sort of way, it kind of makes you feel better about that. You know what I mean? It as, because that's this is the way we are. Uh, human beings is the way we are. We are naturally um, envious, and we like it when somebody uh, has a, a terrific windfall that we didn't get. Uh, we always like to look back and say, we would have managed our money better. But would we really? I mean, honestly, if somebody wrote you a check for $2 billion, put $2 billion in your bank account, I, I think we would all make some pretty questionable financial moves at some point or another, you know? Um, but nonetheless, we like to hear about other people blowing their money. So we wouldn't do that. No, we'd never do that. Uh, speaking of rich people, this was kind of an interesting story, and you talk about gaming the system. So um, this is the story. It says some wealthy New York City families are relocating to rural areas in the South just so that their children are more appealing to Ivy League schools. This is according to a uh, report in the New York Post. Um, They spoke to an admissions, college admissions consultant, Christopher Rim, uh, founder and CEO of Command Education, says in the article, the obsession with these elite schools has absolutely gone off the rails. Many Ivy League admissions officers are actively recruiting in non-urban areas where there are no students currently applying. And they don't see a lot of applicants from the rural south. And so these so these rich, you know, uh, New England elites who want to get their kids into these Ivy League schools are therefore moving to rural areas of the south so that they can apply and catch the eye of the admissions people at these Ivy League schools. The problem, of course, being that the end result is that students who actually do live in those areas who apply um, are getting the short end of the stick. They're, you can see why the Ivy League schools want to attract those people and uh, – because there are so few of them applying, those that do apply generally have better chances of admission. And so these rich people are now gaming the system by moving to those areas and taking those spots that truly deserving individuals with fewer opportunities to get into Ivy League schools are now have to battle with these interlopers. Uh, Mr. Rim uh, quoted as saying, that he has seen families ditch prestigious New York City prep schools in favor of moving to states like Kentucky and Arkansas for high school just so they could get into Ivy League schools. Other families tried to get their children started in college prep er as early as second or third grade, and one family even lied about their child's age in a bid to get them enrolled while still in fifth grade. It's just crazy, isn't it? That's just crazy. And... You know how much they're spending for those Ivy League schools uh, as well. It is just absolutely crazy. So they'll do anything to game the system, apparently. That was kind of interesting. And lastly, among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, Halloween is right around the corner. 
And this is candy corn season. Are you a candy corn aficionado? Are you an enthusiast? Candy corn is one of those candies you either love it or hate it. If you love it, you should know this. Brock's, the leading candy corn brand in America, is introducing the Brock's Candy Corn Club. It, it, is, it is an exclusive club for 100 lucky candy corn superfans that will treat them to year-round free subscription boxes featuring candy corn, exclusive previews of other seasonal candy innovations, and unique candy corn-themed merchandise. <laughs> Are you excited yet? For those that don't make it into the club... The first 5,000 participants will receive a rebate for a complimentary bag of Brock's Classic Candy Corn. You can apply for the club uh, from now until September 30th at brockscandycornclub.com. It's not an Ivy League college, but it's still pretty cool. (laughs) If you were into the whole candy corn thing. Some are, some aren't. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Partly to mostly sunny skies today with a high around 80. Partly cloudy tonight, a low in the upper 50s. The Finley Police Department is seeking help from the public and identifying a person of interest in a crime. Police say the man you can see in the surveillance picture on our website is a person of interest in a theft and unlawful entry investigation at a local business. The police department is asking people who recognize the subject to contact the police department or Hancock County Crime Stoppers. Again, you can see the surveillance picture of that person of interest in the story on our website. Bowling Green State University has put its head hockey coach on administrative leave as it investigates a report of alleged hazing. Three players are also on interim suspension. The statement does not name the three players nor specify any details about the alleged hazing. BGSU officials say they immediately notified local law enforcement and initiated their own investigation. Upon receiving the report, assistant coach Curtis Carr will take over as interim head coach. Tracy Townsend, ONN News. A state commission has put off a decision on whether to open two state parks and two state wildlife areas to oil and gas exploration. The chair of the Oil and Gas Land Management Commission says members didn't have consensus and weren't ready to vote, so they put a decision off to a later date. The commission is deciding whether to lease mineral rights to Wolf Run State Park, Salt Fork State Park, Zeppernick Wildlife Area, and Valley Run Wildlife Area. At the ODNR headquarters in Columbus, Doug Petcast. The University of Finley will be hosting a health and wellness fair on Thursday. University resources will be joined by community organizations to offer health information, screenings, and flu shots. Hancock Public Health will also be on hand to offer tetanus, hepatitis A, flu, and meningitis vaccines. Get more on the health and wellness fair in the story on our website. Despite a dominant win last weekend, the Ohio State football team did not budge in the national rankings. They remain right there in the number six spot for now. Their next chance to move up comes this weekend when they take on Notre Dame. I'm Tracy Townsend. Don't forget you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Mayor Christina Mern is with us in the studio this morning. 
Uh, we're coming up here very soon on everyone's favorite time of the year in city government, and that is the uh, annual budgeting process. When does this uh, actually start? What is the yes. kind of timeline on this? Well, so we really start our internal processes in the next week or two. We'll start okay. doing kind of all, last night, um, the auditor had his pre-budget meeting with city council, just kind of saying here are some things to watch Mm -hmm. then we'll be starting with our department heads and making sure that you know they they start going through their budgets and start planning for next year and looking Mm -hmm. at potential prices for materials and different things like that right but then we really start getting into the meat and potatoes in october yeah um and you have actually proposed um maybe a different approach uh, to the budget process moving forward. And just to clarify, this is not something that would impact this year's budgeting process because, again, you're, like, right on top of it now. So Right. So what I'm asking city council to do is I would like them to put together a ballpark cost of what it would be for them to host ward meetings or a ward block party um, in their wards starting next year. And this is something that I've kind of been thinking about that I wanted to see um, start when I took office. Obviously, COVID kind of put the damper on that. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's a great way to build community. It's a great way for, um, excuse me, for folks that council members may not typically hear from or get to engage with to kind of have a low stress environment. Um, But it could be, you know, hosting a ward kind of town hall at council chambers. It could be a block party. It could be, you know, whatever they really think is best for them. So I'm asking them to put together a budget and then next year we will help them do that. We also are asking them to do a questionnaire. And that is looking at what is a project you would like us to look at doing in the next two years within your ward. Mm -hmm. And then then what's one that maybe in the next three to 10 years. So it could be things that they see, you know, maybe there's a certain block of sidewalks that need replaced and they Mm -hmm. want us to help get that completed. Maybe there's some dilapidated structure that they hear complaints about that, you know, hasn't been communicated to us. So it's really just making sure that the council members Um, are getting the support from the administration to get out into their wards and ask questions and and make sure that they're providing feedback to us Um, because we try to really see and be out, but we can't, we don't see everything. Uh, It's uh, easy to see the benefits of uh, involving more people in the process and having elected officials get out and meet the individuals that they represent. Uh, That's a pretty easy sell job. Uh, I would think, what would the, I mean, you're looking at doing this annually uh, in advance of next year's budget to kind of set priorities? Is it, it would be a quarterly thing? I mean, what's the yeah, logistics? Of it would it? just be annually would be okay. what I'd like to see. And um, it can really be any time throughout the year. I think just asking those questions on a regular basis and opening lines of communication with residents. Uh, You know, I get tons of emails on a daily basis or we'll receive Facebook comments. But I think it's important for folks to recognize that their council members are also available to them um, and that council members are communicating with the administration. That's something that happens, but I think being a little more open about it will really go a long way. It is a valid point that this would not be the only uh, dialogue uh, that uh, the, the, the only option for communication with your elected uh, officials uh, certainly but what <laughs> what has been the uh, the reaction in presenting this uh, idea yeah council is uh, very open to it they recognize the value in it and i think um you know in the past there's been some hesitancy just because they had to try to figure it out and do it and mm-hmm. maybe some of them are not the most um you know party planners <laughs> so um so myself and jen jacqueline holman our project manager are 
volunteering to help them get those organized. And I think that that will really go a long way. And I look forward to seeing, you know, how it rolls out next year. Uh of course, City Council uh, met last night. One of the uh, things that's been talked about uh, really o- over the past uh, couple of weeks or so uh, is the proposal or the idea floated by Habitat for Humanity to create a, uh, a housing development. Um, I don't want to say a subdivision necessarily, mm-hmm. but a development within a subdivision uh, specifically for Habitat homes. Now, we've talked with the folks at Habitat in the past, and they've said that one of their biggest challenges is in property acquisition. Mm-hmm. This would address that, but there has been some pushback. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think it's a great opportunity um, for us to have a really open conversation about how do we address affordable housing and kind of workforce housing in our community. Um, we definitely are evolving as a community and we have folks that you know have been in their homes for decades and decades and decades Um, but we have new people coming to our community or that have been living here for a while that have been renting that want to get into home ownership and need a stable environment and a place that then is an asset to them and Habitat does a wonderful job of coming alongside those folks coaching them holding them accountable and making sure that they're stable and really helping them get you know a, a new start to life mm-hmm. um so i think that that's a really beneficial organization what's unique about this is that typically city government is not an owner of large property like this you know we have 26 acres that were previously purchased mm-hmm. that are not really of good use to us anymore except for the fact that we recognize this as a prime opportunity for residential development So based off of the conversations that we had at the ad hoc committee last week, what I think we're going to look at doing, and we still need to put together more information, is look at doing a development where it would be um, some of the plots would be sold off to developers, whoever really would like to buy them, and then a certain ratio of them would also be donated to Habitat for Humanity so that we would have more of a mixed neighborhood. Um, And it would be developed over time. You know, that's one thing with Habitat's development. It was going to be developed over 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't like suddenly there's going to be 60 new homes or Mm -hmm. 70 new homes here. But I think it's a great opportunity. The West Park neighborhood is a perfect neighborhood um, and being able to, to put it there. Now, I think we're obviously hearing a lot of concern from the neighborhood right. of, of change. And, right. and so we need to work through addressing some of their concerns. So here is the thing that I thought was uh, kind of interesting about some of the pushback or some of the concerns that were raised. I mean, oftentimes uh, there is the effect, uh, the, the NIMBY effect, the not in my backyard uh, effect with mm-hmm. many types of yeah. uh, development. It doesn't appear that that is really necessarily what's happening here uh, in the sense that there are some... Uh, some legitimate concerns being raised by those who uh, those families in that that neighborhood about uh, the lack of infrastructure and the lack of in and out uh, to that part of the uh, of the area neighborhood and and so on. How do you address those uh, concerns, which do seem valid? Yeah, so I think we're having a little bit of all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they they don't want the development. They they don't want more housing, um, which. And some of that is due um, to the, the previous population. Some of it is just because they don't want development. Um, and then some of it is because of valid concerns. Um, so our team had actually been out at the West Park Block Watch uh, party a couple weeks ago, um, specifically actually talking about the stormwater um, infrastructure, because we have there are parts of West Park, the majority of it, that do not have stormwater infrastructure. Now, mm-hmm. I want to point out there are, are other pockets throughout town that do not have stormwater infrastructure. 
and stormwater infrastructure is not not the end all be all. You are at times it is not necessary based off of sheet flow and drainage in the area. You're at times you're going to have although, water on on your yard. Like, although so, to be fair, whenever you mention the word water in the city of Finlay, that raises people's yeah, grabs definitely. people's attention. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and, and I think so. one of the big one of the big things is to say one, we have a stormwater investment plan for West Park that we have shared with them. Mm-hmm. We have made in West Park neighborhood over the last five years a higher dollar amount of investment in that area with all sorts of things. Um, more than three of our other neighborhood, you know, other subdivisions combined. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we recognize the concerns and we're working to address them. The other thing I would say related to the stormwater infrastructure specifically is that a development like this could actually help some of their drainage issues. And I know that that doesn't necessarily make sense, but because of the detention ponds, because some of the grading changes that we would be able to make, um, we would be addressing um, the t- new division that would be built, the new area that would be built if it moves forward, would be built to a 100-year storm detention requirement with a 25-year storm outlet. Um, so that's a higher standard than the st- previous subdivision. And was just to, to clarify what you were mentioning, that there is a plan in place to address those issues in that entire neighborhood. Does that include, uh, has that been uh, the development of this particular parcel has been no. included in that that was okay. no this was something i believe it was developed in 2016 2017 and then so we've that been working be through it yep right. so it would but but that would be built out separate because that's this is all across the road it's in a different area so gotcha. it, it would be developed now you know access i understand obviously more traffic again um, we've been repaving a lot of the roads through there um, so yes, you're, you're going to have some, some traffic that, that mm-hmm. is, that is normal. Um, uh, I know that they, they have expressed frustration on not having sidewalks. That's something we could look at, but it's my understanding historically there's been push at, back in adding them because mm-hmm. of the cost of, of doing so. Right. Um, so it, it's a mix, right? So we're going to listen to the concerns. We're going to try to address them, but ultimately we also have a responsibility to see how we can address housing in our community as a whole. And this is a location that is is really planned for development. That's uh, that's the other thing, and I think is uh, worth emphasizing that again. Some have said that this is not a good area for additional development, but you're saying that that is exactly what that area is designed to be. Correct. It is, is it? currently has been for a while um, zoned R3 residential mm-hmm. lots, which are smaller lots. And one of the things we said is, okay, we wouldn't do R3 small lots. We would do more R2. So they're less dense and only do about 50 homes in mm-hmm. that area. Again, all speculative at this point, but yeah. that is where the discussion is going. Um, and uh, as part of the land use map, it is also, you know, if you look at it, it, it is tucked away in a neighborhood, right? That's not a spot where we would want to put any commercial or industrial really a development um and i think that Although that's why the city uh acquired the the land in the first we originally place, acquired it for our public works building yeah. to do an outpost Which out there um it's and, not industrial but is yeah still, it is definitely yeah, higher intensity yeah. right you're going to have bucket trucks and equipment and right. think during a snowstorm right. if your salt barn was out there mm-hmm. you're going to have 50 pick you know uh, plow trucks going every three hours to yeah. stop out there so i i think you know, again, we'll work through it. Nothing is a done deal, but I think it is a better scenario than what's being led to believe. What is the timeline? Because as you mentioned, this is not a done deal. This is still in the early stages, but is there a timeline? Um, No specific timeline. So the direction from council was to kind of start putting together a plan. 
So I need to work on developing what would a kind of subdivision plat look like? How can we address some of the concerns from the neighborhood? Um, as well as then what does the cost look like? What would we want to sell plats at? All of that different stuff. So it's probably going to still be a, uh, a couple of months. So as, a lot more. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of other discussion. things on our plate. So I don't expect this to be something that um, I'm hoping we'll have kind of an update in the next month or so, but it's still a long road ahead. We will leave it there for now, but uh, again, probably we'll revisit this as we move forward. Again, Finley Mayor Christina Mern, thanks very much for dropping thanks, by. Thanks, Chris. We Always good to see you. we get to the latest in our ongoing series of crime prevention conversations and we are joined this morning by uh, brian white who's crime prevention officer for the finley police department um talking about combating the problem of bullying and especially cyberbullying in this modern age and uh, how this relates to our children's safety and security obviously this has been something that has been on everybody's radar screen, uh, especially since Columbine, really. Sure, absolutely. Uh, because we really got this dramatic wake-up call as to what this, you know, what unfettered, unchecked bullying and uh, can can lead to. Absolutely. Uh, you know, bullying has been around a very long time, and it's right. always been tough for schools, especially to get a handle on what to do and how to respond to it. Yeah, and it's interesting that really thrust it into the law enforcement spotlight because I think prior prior to this, it wasn't really considered a law enforcement matter, but now, sure, it's much more of an internal matter with schools and mm-hmm. schools addressing it, whether right. or not it was through suspensions or, or whatever process they exactly. had in place at the exactly. time. Now, when we talk about uh, preventing a serious incident, uh, law enforcement has to step in. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's one of our main goals is yeah. to prevent something from happening. The one difference, of course, 20 some odd years ago when Columbine happened, we didn't have to deal with social media and the cyberbullying aspect on, on this, which has added a whole new layer uh, to the to what was an already complicated problem. Absolutely. It w- you know, we saw incidents of violence in the past. I mean, there's documented cases of stuff happening, but it wasn't uh, wide-scalely uh, shown on TV. Mm-hmm. You didn't see it a right. lot. It wasn't on social media all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say it gives kids ideas. Some people say, well, it's not the case. They already have the idea, but mm-hmm. it at least promotes whatever their agenda might be. Yeah. Uh, So how do you combat it? Like you said, this has been going on for as long as there have been youth. There has been bullying because kids don't know where those lines are. They're still figuring all of that out. Sure. Well, administratively, it's very tough to stop. Now, when I go in, I talk with kids in school and talk with parents. That's why I tell them it really starts with them. It starts with the students um, kind of. Uh, being nice to each other, right? Mm-hmm. It starts with parents educating their kids on appropriate ways of interacting with other students mm-hmm. and also monitoring social media, which is often where a lot of bullying takes place. Yeah, especially uh, these days. Is it? Is it? Uh, are, are we to the point where that's actually the greater concern? Well, it, or, for, for me, that's what I see because that's where everyone goes to now. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a reason why the Surgeon General put out the report back in May, you know, talking about social media and concerns to mental health, mm-hmm. right? And what they found is that about 95% of teenagers um, were on social media, right, right? In, in large amounts of time. Mm-hmm. And 40% of children ages 8 to 12 were on social media as well. Now, that kind of goes against what we normally think of because there's always that little tab that I am yeah. 13, years 13 years old, years old. right? That's kind of... 
and there and there is also a new law set to take effect in the state of Ohio uh, that would restrict access, uh, not prohibit access, but would restrict access to social media for kids under the age of 16. Correct. Do you see that as, is that going to make a difference? Well, it's one of those things where you can always make laws, right? right. Um, and that will encourage... Uh, but some, if you already have those under right, 15 who are right. signed up now... Right. It, you know. it really, again, starts with parents, parents educating their kids on how to be responsible on social media and really monitoring what is going on. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is is interesting, and I, I can't remember where I saw a report on this that, that made the point, and I think if most of us look back into our own childhood, we can probably see this as being true, that that there are quite often uh, a, a single child will be both a victim and a perpetrator in different situations. Sure, and I have seen that play out many times where yeah. the reason why someone is bullying someone else is because they were bullied. Mm-hmm. I mean, bullying is a learned behavior. It's not right. something that you look at little kids, right? Everyone kind of gets along. Sometimes we're, we're pushing or shoving, but that's because we want a toy, right? Mm-hmm. It's not really to make that child feel bad about themselves, which is yeah. the intent behind bullying. Right. So we learn it through others. But again, and and part of that is pushing those boundaries and learning what is socially acceptable. Correct, correct. So what's the best way to combat it? Well, uh, again, it starts with responsible use. Um, When when I talk with kids in school, generally what I find is that uh, they spend about six to seven hours on social media. That's a lot of time, Mm -hmm. especially when you dial it back to the Surgeon General report that says those who spend more than three hours a day on social media face double the risk of poor mental health, including depression and anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? So now we're talking about mental health. Yeah. And that can uh, cause a whole other string of problems along Mm -hmm. the way. Yeah. So responsible use, you know, parents can cut out those devices or at least limit them. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how many times I see parents using screens as a reward, right? Or just a way for children to behave when mm-hmm. they're at a restaurant. Yeah. You don't, kids are always wanting to use them already. You don't want to make it a reward, right? Something that they're striving mm-hmm. to attain. Yeah. You want to limit that exposure, especially at a young younger yeah. age. Yeah. Um, and I, I, uh, I, it, like I said, it it is uh, it is so pervasive that you wonder: can you put the genie back in the bottle? No, no, yeah. you can't. It's not I something mean, we can take away. Social media is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be around, and in some ways, I would anticipate it becoming more so part of our life. And it's it's also a bit of a moving target because when you and I uh, think social media as adults probably the first thing that comes to mind is facebook absolutely for young kids that's maybe the last place (laughs) i mean they're already on to you know the other the instagrams and the snapchats and you know all of these other things yep that that becomes uh, part of the thing that complicates this absolutely it's a moving target me going into middle schools and talking with kids about uh, social media and you know being responsible that's one of the things we talk about right is the different social media platforms out there Mm -hmm. and we bring up facebook and they kind of laugh they go that's where my grandparents go to kind (laughs) of see what i'm doing right right so that that's actually another tip and trick for parents right be aware of what's out there and Mm -hmm. that is a daunting task because the, the field of social media is changing every single day. Yeah. So that is where keeping tabs on your kids. And we talk about privacy. That always comes up. You know, parents, mm-hmm. I need to give my kids privacy. Mm-hmm. Well, you need to kind of lock down their phones. Limit what they can download. 
mm-hmm. right, and pay attention to what they are using yeah. and talk with them about it. Is is some of the concern about social media, I don't want to say misplaced, because, I mean, obviously protecting our kids' privacy is uh, very important, but do we get so wrapped up in that aspect of it that we overlook a, a greater uh, danger of things like cyberbullying, that kind of thing? I mean, can we... Well, it's, it's twofold, right? Uh, social media. It, I mean, I it, guess they were all probably tied together. But. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when we talk about stranger danger, right? Uh, the stranger down the street. It's no longer the stranger down the street, although that still is a concern. Right. It's everyone that you are exposing yourself to on social media, right? Yeah. Because that's a wider net of people mm-hmm. that uh, it could be financial exploitation, even kids, right? You talk about credit. They have some of the best credit there is because right. they don't. They don't have any, right? So it's a blank slate. Their social security numbers are still something you want to protect, Mm -hmm. that personal information. Or even uh, them posting pictures of them in some of their schoolware that identifies their school, right? Mm -hmm. You just never know. You got to protect yourselves. Yeah. Um, So here's the the big question for, for parents as we're trying to navigate this with our kids. What if. We come across something that is concerning. What's the best course of action? Well, uh, talk with the kids about it first. Again, communication is key. In, mm-hmm. in everything that I preach, it's communication. Talking with them, uh, making sure that you are that safe outlet that they can go to. Because right. if you are not that outlet, they're going to turn to someone else, probably mm-hmm. someone that you don't want them to. Yeah. So communication, uh, addressing it with the school, uh, and then law enforcement yeah. if you have to. Absolutely. Again, uh, Brian White is a uh, crime prevention officer at the Finley Police Department, uh, talking about uh, cyberbullying, online safety, social media, all of this as it relates to our kids and uh, how it relates to their uh, safety and security in our crime prevention conversations. Brian, thanks very much for dropping by. We thanks, Chris. It. Glad to be here. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Now, this is embarrassing. Uh, This is out of uh, Arkansas, where state police officials say a trooper has retired after he crashed his vehicle into the wrong car during a pursuit. Now, that's embarrassing. Uh, The whole thing happened on Sunday on Interstate 40 around 830 in the evening, when the trooper in question performed what is sometimes called a tactical vehicle intervention or a precision immobilization technique maneuver. Basically, what it is, is they deliberately and in a controlled manner force a car off the road uh, that they are pursuing. They deliberately crash a car in a controlled manner to end a police chase. Uh, They basically wreck the suspect vehicle. However, in this particular maneuver, (laughs) the trooper trooper had been in pursuit of two vehicles traveling over 100 miles an hour. One of the vehicles being chased was a white four-door sedan. Unfortunately, the trooper in pursuit misidentified a bystander's vehicle as the suspect's car and executed the maneuver, crashing the wrong car and bringing it to a halt. (laughs) Oops! That is a big oops right there. Uh, The trooper passes uh, several cars. There's video of this, obviously. Uh, The trooper passes several cars before his vehicle approaches the white sedan, which flashes its brake lights as the trooper draws near. I mean, if you've got a a trooper bearing down on you, what's the first thing you do? You, you, you You hit your brakes, 
You're not sure what's going on. But as the white car slows down, the trooper rams his vehicle into the rear left side of the car, sending it flying into the shoulder of the highway. Both the driver and a passenger in the stopped vehicle were uninjured. Uh, So fortunately, nobody seriously hurt. State police officials say the trooper's supervisor immediately began an internal review of the incident, which is ongoing. The trooper involved in the crash has submitted his letter of retirement and has not been on duty since the incident. (laughs) It's a rather enigmatic way to uh, end your career in law enforcement, but it may be for the best. That's embarrassing. That is an embarrassing mistake. Although, I guess you could could understand, but I would think maybe he would have gotten the license plate number and would (laughs) have... Anyway... Investigation is ongoing. Uh, Elsewhere in the uh, broken news this morning, police say thieves attempting to steal a water heater from a former bank in Detroit caused an explosion yesterday. Investigators say the blast destroyed the front of the building. Uh, The thieves did not end up taking the water heater, but left the gas line on... uh, on which uh, caused uh, get uh, the thieves did not take the water heater, but left the gas line on, which caused the blast. That was <laughs> why they were stealing a water heater. I have no idea. Uh, investigators say they have surveillance video of the suspects from a nearby business. No injuries were reported, but <laughs> they might they might think twice before trying that again. <laughs> Uh, In Los Angeles, uh, police are investigating after a thief broke into a home that was being fumigated for insects. Uh, The owner of the home in Mar Vista says the guy cut the bug tent. You know, they have homes fumigated. They put this giant tent over the home uh, and then, you know, fumigate the home. Well, some guy cut the bug tent, then climbed through a window into the home and stole thousands of dollars worth of the guy's, the uh, uh, family's belongings. And believe it or not, this is not the first time. This is the second such crime to happen just within the past week. Thief also targeted a home that was being fumigated in Venice. Wow. That's brave right there. I mean, that can be kind of nasty. There's a reason why they have those uh, tents over there to keep people out. Uh, can be kind of dangerous. Also from California, Highway Patrol there uh, uncovered nearly a half a million dollars worth of cocaine during a routine traffic stop last week. An officer pulled over a man driving a rented U-Haul pickup truck for a traffic violation. Officials were then alerted to the presence of drugs by a canine unit, and a search turned up eight pounds of cocaine, valued at nearly a half a million dollars. 26-year-old driver was arrested and booked at the Fresno County Jail on drug trafficking charges. You would think you're going uh, to traffic nearly a half a million dollars worth of cocaine. Nearly a half a million dollars worth of cocaine. <laughs> Maybe you'd buy your own truck. Instead of having to rent a U-Haul. <laughs> just just saying. I'm that was kind of weird to me. Uh there is uh, this item from New York State. A man is uh, fortunately gonna be okay after he got stuck in an abandoned mine for hours. 
triggering a dramatic rescue. Fire officials in the Hudson Valley say the man and four friends were exploring some sealed-off mines behind a train station Sunday night when he went too far into the mine and became trapped on a lower ledge. His friends tried unsuccessfully for hours to get him out before calling for help. Video shows firefighters conducting a high-angle rescue operation navigating steep and dark conditions. Also had to deal with bats and pouring rain. After more than three additional hours, the man was finally removed unhurt and reunited with his friends. But his, his, uh, his career is spelunking. Uh, his hobby of spelunking is probably over, I would think. And finally, in the broken news this morning, this out of New Jersey, in a surprising twist during their move into a new home, Kathy and Roy Aukamp stumbled upon an unconventional treasure concealed behind their basement's drywall. A whopping 99 bottles of rum. The discovery occurred when their basement flooded after a storm, necessitating the removal of the wet plasterboard. And as they did, a cascade of empty booze bottles poured out from behind the wall, leaving the couple astounded. 99 bottles of beer on the wall, 99 bottles of beer, or behind the uh, wall, as the case may be. That was the the first thing I saw that story. That was the first thing that popped into my mind. 99 bottles of rum on the wall, 99 bottles. <laughs> they have no idea how it got there or who actually put it. Was it the uh, previous owner or, you know, sometime even before that? I have no, long, uh, no idea how long it's been there. There you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. When you're behind the wheel, it's okay to rock out to your music. But it's not okay to interact with your phone screen and electronic devices while driving. In most cases, anything more than a single touch or swipe is against the law. That means no texting, no typing, no scrolling, no shopping, no browsing. If an officer sees a violation, they can pull you over. So remember, Ohio, phones down. It's the law. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. And a bit of a civics lesson here. How well do you know your First Amendment rights? This past Sunday was Constitution Day, commemorating the formation and signing of the U.S. Constitution in September of 1787. And according to the latest Annenberg Constitution Day Civics Survey, 77% of the American population, 77%, nearly 8 in 10 of us, can only name one of the rights guaranteed under the First Amendment. There are several. But how many can you name? 77% could only name one. And that one is usually freedom of speech. That's the first one we think about, right? Guaranteed by the First Amendment. Only 5% of the folks in the survey could list all five of the First Amendment rights that are spelled out, which are freedom of speech, the right to assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. 
So those are the five. Only 5% could name them all. It's interesting that 22% in the survey mentioned the right to bear arms, which is a right, but is not in the First Amendment. That is the second. And yet nearly a quarter mentioned that as a First Amendment right. Now, whether that was because they misunderstood the question or whether they were genuinely confused about where the right to bear arms is in the Constitution, Kathleen Hall Jameson is director of the survey for Annenberg, Uh, said the data was worrisome in her view. As she put it, one is unlikely to cherish or work to protect freedoms one does not know one has. Well, we were talking the other day about this being the time to get to the doctor for your annual flu shot. Well, you know who else needs to see the doctor at least once a year? Your pet. Those furry family members need regular wellness visits, too, because after all, they deserve the same kind of care as any other member of the family. Veterinarian Dr. Heather Burst from Zoetis is with us this morning. Now, we frame this in the context of us going to get our annual flu shot, getting our kids their vaccinations, you know, ahead of back to school. This may be a dumb question, but that's not really a concern for our pets, right? Cold and flu season? You know, that is a great question. So. You know, it is. It's important to get them in just like we go in for those vaccines to to get them in for some preventative care. You know, we like to go in when you get your flu shot, you get a checkup, maybe you get some blood drawn, you go to your dentist. You know, these guys need the same thing. One year of our life can be five to seven of theirs. So you don't want to go that long without going to take them in. And your veterinarian is trained to pick up some of the signs of illness. So they can, they can definitely do that when they go in, ideally even every six months for them. Well, that's what I was going to say. Uh, we mentioned in, you know, getting a vet appointment annually, but really for most pets, it should be even more frequently. It really should be. And, you know, as they get to be seniors, I think it's even more important. Okay. They can sneak up on you as they get to be older. Like things like, you know, osteoarthritis pain. Some cats even get it. Sometimes people don't realize it. And um, dogs do too. So... Your vet can help you kind of figure out if your pet's having any signs of pain and other diseases too. Yeah, so very important for pet owners to schedule those regular checkups. And when we think of vaccines for our pets, the first thing, again, not a flu vaccine necessarily, but we do think rabies. What are some of the other vaccines that pet owners should be (laughs) talking to their vet about? Yeah, you know, so rabies is 100% fatal for people and animals. So rabies is going to be really important. But there's, a, you know, a lot of other different vaccines. So talking to your vet, you know, what about your pet's lifestyle? Do you travel places with your pet? Because some of these diseases that can be prevented um, can be spread just by them walking outside, contaminated water, bites. And prevention is really going to be key. I mean, really think about rabies. You want to make sure they, they don't get that or you. The other thing that we think of with dogs especially are parasites like fleas and ticks. But the common thought is that we're coming out of that season now. How important is parasite prevention after summer is over? You you know, so I was up in Pennsylvania in the winter and I actually found a tick in my dog in January. So unfortunately, those fleas and ticks can be out year round. So you want to use year-round parasite prevention. You know, heartworms one, 
that's a disease that can be spread by mosquitoes. And once they have heartworm disease, it can cause permanent damage to that heart. So you want to make sure they have prevention for that. So you talk to your vet. You know, there's oral pills, there's topical medications, there's even injectable medications that they can give to help prevent some of those parasites. The other thing that you talk about, and I, I think this is often overlooked because we kind of go down the list of all the things that the you know that our pets need in terms of vaccinations and treatments and and so on. But the other thing you talk about is the importance of developing a strong relationship uh, with your veterinarian as a pet owner. Again, not unlike the kind of relationship that you want to have with your family doctor. That is really true. Think of, I think, as your veterinarian, as your other family doctor. And, you know, so what is, we say, bring your dog or cat to the veterinarian as soon as you get it. So whether it be a new puppy, kitten, or an adult rescue animal, you know, maybe schedule a time where they're less busy, bring in your list of questions, uh, make sure you get them all answered, and talk to not only that veterinarian, that whole vet healthcare team. They're going to be your partner through your pet's entire lifespan to keep them healthy and happy. And they could, you know, weave a story of wellness. So as they get to be seniors, they could kind of figure out your pet's not doing well and help you hopefully make them feel better. Yeah, just to reiterate something you were mentioning earlier, uh, it's so important for the the fact that your, your pet can't tell you if they are not feeling well or if uh, they are in pain, whatever it might happen to be. Uh, so, you know, having that regular checkup and that dialogue with a veterinarian is going to give you that information that you're not going to be able to to really tell otherwise because animals are pretty good at, at hiding it when they are ill. They really are. You know, sometimes in the wild, you know, dogs and cats, they don't want other members of their packs to know yeah. potentially there's a problem. So they try and not let you know they're sick. So, you know, the veterinarian will do a really thorough exam, check their teeth, listen to their heart. You know, something like blood work can often uncover things like kidney and liver diseases as mm-hmm. they age. So there's some things that can be happening that you don't, you don't quite realize with your pet. Yeah. But catching it early can actually sometimes fix it. And in other cases, you know, help it get better in the long run. And it could even save money yeah. um, by catching these things early on. A good point as well. Yeah, it's that survival instinct that animals have to hide their pain. And uh, as owners, sometimes we even miss it. Any final takeaways that we need to share that people need to remember when it comes to their pet's wellness check? You know, owning a pet certainly is a pleasure, but it also comes with that responsibility so be sure, you know, take them in for those regular visits, ideally every six months. Have that whole veterinary, you know, team be your partner. Like I said, the other family doctor. Um, get to know them, build a relationship. And if you want more, you know, tips and tricks on taking your pets to the vet, I would recommend Zoetis, Z-O-E-T-I-S, PetCare.com. There's a checklist of what to bring to the vet visit. Also some tips because sometimes these guys could get afraid when yeah. you bring him in about how to keep him more comfortable and relaxed. Yeah, I know my uh, my pet, my dog, is uh, not really necessarily a fan of going to the vet any more than I'm a fan of going to the doctor. So uh, (laughs) honestly, it's not all that different. Uh, Again, veterinarian Dr. Heather Burst with us from Zoetis. Dr. Burst, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. 
And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, of course, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. Check us out online at goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, remember last season when we were hit with an early outbreak of flu, COVID, and RSV all at once? What's the likelihood of another triple threat this year? Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.